We're launching a new series today called A Sacrifice of Praise. Uh, I know some of you are like, where's the book of John? It's coming. It's coming. I, 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 have a, I have a reason for kind of putting it off. And a couple of things I'd like to do this fall in particular before we get back to John. One of them is, is worship. I, um, I've been challenged. There was a number of conversations I've had with a number of individuals uh, that really challenged me to say, hey, it's my job to, to be the lead worship, the, the, the worship leader at this church. Like, I don't sing. You're welcome. I don't have a microphone, but I am ultimately the lead worship. And I'll tell you about that in a second. The idea of sacrifice to praise comes from Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15. You don't have to turn there with me. I just wanted to let you know where we're launching from. This is, this is Paul, not Paul. This is the author of Hebrews. Um, He's, he's writing and bringing to close the book of Hebrews, and he talks about uh, you know, offerings that are no longer required and what God requires from us. Listen to this verse. Therefore, let us offer through Jesus a continual sacrifice of praise to God, proclaiming our allegiance to his name. The ESV, which is more formal equivalent, maybe your translation says this. <clears throat> Excuse me. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of our lips, that acknowledge his name. So God no longer offer, desires these Old Testament sacrifices of animals. And here in Hebrews uh, chapter 15, we see he wants a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of our lips. Now, if you kept reading in that, verse 16 says, Do not neglect the good, uh, do not neglect to do good and share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So these sacrifices he's speaking are not limited to the fruit of the lips. That we, we, we know from Romans chapter 12, I know you're like, wow, Jerome's diving right into the Bible. Where's the funny story about your children or something like that? Just, just stick with me. <laughs> we know from Romans chapter 12, Paul talks about, you know, therefore, after all of Romans chapters 1 through 11, we offer our bodies as living sacrifices. So the sacrifice we offer to God is our obedience to his word, our yielding to his spirit, the uh, serving him and loving others, those, all those things. And as a matter of fact, when I speak of worship, I'm trying to, I try to be careful not to limit it to singing. Sometimes in church, we think of worship as just what we do. We sing. Can I be honest? Singing is probably the most self-gratifying part of worship, of all the forms of worship. But today we're going to talk about singing. It is the, the fruit of our lips. And I want to talk about singing because we are in a worship service, and we call it worship. We worship in our giving. We worship in, in hearing the word, and we worship even, I think, when we care for one another. But we do worship with our voice. We do worship with singing. And this goes back to those conversations about, Jerome, you're the lead worship leader. Even though I don't hold a mic or I stand here on the stage, I am the lead worship leader. And I'd rather, I'd, I'd rather be like someone else can, and can encourage us to, to worship. Some, someone else can encourage us to, to engage, but ultimately that's on me. So the challenge is to teach about worship biblically and practically. What does it mean that we worship him with a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of our lips that acknowledge his name? I'm ultimately responsible, and that's why we had this message. Today we're going to talk about biblical expressions of worship before we dive into like the theology of worship, which is to come. I think it's appropriate to speak about just like the mechanical, the, the, the expressions, why we do what we do. And in order to do that, we're going to do a survey. 
Like, I gotta be honest with you, I just saw Kathy, I just saw Kathy Scenario, and her husband was the pastor and founder of this church and was an amazing worship guy. And I've heard his sermons preach about worship. So I stand here kind of in fear and trembling that I'm gonna mess this thing up. It's not my thing. But I was designed to do it. I was created to worship. But it's not my comfort zone. And Kathy just made it worse. Hi, Kathy. <laughs> so yeah, this message is, is, is geared to Christians. It's geared to those who would say, hey, I love God. I want to honor him with my life. If you're not a Christian here today, I encourage you to stick around because I want you to hear why we do what we do. You probably noticed we do a lot of singing. Like the first 30 minutes of this thing, we were singing. Why do we sing? Why do people raise their hands? Why do people clap? Why do people, you know, what are we doing in this thing? And, I, and it's not just to explain it to the non-Christians. I think I'm, I'm here to remind us of why we do what we do. Because sometimes, culturally, we do what is kind of culturally handed down. Some of us grew up in churches where it was cultural to respond in worship in the singing part in a certain way. And others, where it was, it was kind of learned not to respond in a certain way. So are expressions of worship cultural or, or what? Let's, let's see what the Bible has to say. Let's talk about biblical expressions. Um, why do we do what we do? I mentioned I'm not, I'm not in my comfort zone in, in terms of the topic. Is, uh, I'm also not in my comfort zone in terms of just a, a sermon structure. If I've been your pastor a while, you know I like to land on one passage of Scripture. We like to like Let's talk about this passage. Let's talk about it in, in its context. Let's exegete the scripture. It's called expository preaching. But when you talk about why do we do what we do in response in, in, in worship, there's not one like key text that I could just land on and be like, oh, I'll just exegete this text. What I found as I began to study for this thing is like, it's over here, it's over here, it's over here. So we're going to take like what's called a topical sermon. We're going to take like an overview of the Bible. We're going to fly through and like, my guys in the back that flip the slides, like the passage of scripture we're, we're, we're studying, usually have like one passage, maybe a supporting scripture, but they're back there going, oh my goodness, we have to hit this button a million times, and they will. So what, what I'm going to do for you today is just throw the things up there. You could jot it down and go back and look at it later. I want to ask you to turn every single time we get there. Before we jump into the text, there's one text that I think is, is incredibly important to lay foundation for why we do what we do, because what we do doesn't matter if our heart's not in it. Isaiah 29, 13 says, these people say they are mine, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me, and their worship of me is nothing but man-made rules learned by rote. God cares what happens in your heart. So it's not any good to just go through the motions of worship if your heart is far from God. But at the same time, Jesus speaks about the heart. What does he say in Luke chapter 6? See, hitting the button already. That's more times he hit the button than all of last week combined. Luke chapter 6, 43 through 46. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot produce good fruit. A tree is identified by its fruit. Figs are never gathered from thorn bushes, and grapes are not picked from bramble bushes. A good person produces good things from the treasure in their good heart, and the evil person produces evil things from the treasure of an evil heart. What you say flows from what's in your heart. If you love the Lord in your heart, it will show. One way or another, it will show. And I contend that it will show in how we talk to people, how we treat people, and how we gather to worship. Worship is expressing our love to God. I mentioned earlier that we're created, created to worship, 
we are all created to worship. Hear that, guys? I say that because I think sometimes when you're a boy growing up in church, only half of you were boys growing up in church. Or maybe you didn't grow up in church. Only half of you were boys growing up. How about that? Um, you kind of get this idea that church is a girl thing, right? This is why I love when men step up and serve in our kids' ministry because our little boys are learning, like, all my teachers are girls. My mom drives me to church. My dad's staying home. Church is for chicks. We learn that at a very young age. We do. And it's, it's, it, it doesn't help our, 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 our young men become godly men. And then, you know what doesn't help? Sometimes our worship songs don't help. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a promise to you that... I, as pastor, as the lead worship leader, I, I don't want to sing, I, I, men, I'm talking to the men, ladies, you, could, you don't care either way, men, I promise, I'm going to do my best not to sing Jesus is my boyfriend songs, all right? Because you were created to worship, and I don't want to throw an obstacle into that. You were created to worship, men, and when you do what you were created to do, then you're more what you're supposed to be, I mean, like, listen, when you do more of what you were created to do, then you are more of who you were created to be, and you were created to be a man. I'm saying this because I, I, I think sometimes we leave the worship to the ladies. And sometimes it's our songs. There's a song that I particularly love. That's sarcasm. There's a song that I, that I, that I you know where I'm going with this, don't you, babe? There's a song. I don't know if you know the song. How does it go? I want to sit at your feet. Drink from the cup in your hand. Lay back against you and drink. Or drink? Breathe. Don't drink. We don't drink in church. Lay back against you and breathe and feel your heartbeat. Ladies, listen. I love Jesus, but he's a dude. I do not want to sit at his feet. I do not want to drink from the cup in his hand, nor do I want to lean against him and breathe. Like, he's a guy. Like, I'm a guy. Like, that's an obstacle for us. But just know, worship is manly. And I just want to get that out of the way for all the guys in the house. In fact, if doing what you were created to do makes you more of who you were created to be, then worshiping God may be the manliest thing you can do. Worshiping in all forms and fashion. So let's talk about biblical expressions. And i got to say this up front. I, biblical expressions of worship, it's not like the law. I'm not telling you what you have to do. Christianity, by, by definition, means you don't have to do anything because we're saved by grace. If you were forced to worship, it wouldn't necessarily demonstrate your love for God. But when we choose to worship, when we choose to express our love for God, then it's like significant, right? I kind of hear, my, I kind of hear like the dinner table, sack dinner table. You don't have to eat your vegetables. You get to eat your vegetables. Perhaps it's the same thing. We're going to look at the, the, what the Bible shows us in terms of expressions of worship. Um, and I do want to say this, because there are people at Radiant from different traditions, there are different, from different backgrounds, um, there's no judgment. I'm not judging you. As a matter of fact, I don't know how, what you do when you worship. You could sit there on your phone uh, surfing Facebook. I wouldn't know because my back is turned to you. There's no judgment whatsoever. I'm not going to push hard. I'm not going to leverage guilt. I know what it's like to, to be in a worship service and to kind of have that guilt leveraged, right? Have you ever, anyone else went to camp in the Assemblies of God in the 1990s? Just me? Okay. Um, I grew up as a church kid. 
I know what it's like to kind of have those emotions manipulated or, or, or people that, that feel that pressure to respond in a certain way. And so I became very defensive. When the worship leader says, would you all raise your hands? I was, I was, I would, I'd be like, nope. You're not going to pressure me to do something I don't want to do. It's not from my heart. As a matter of fact, my heart is now hardened towards this whole thing. And that's a problem, actually. Like, I thought I was, like, being respectful and not being manipulated, but what I, what I found out is my defensiveness became rebellion, and, and as a result, my worship was affected. The way in which I engaged and, and, and gave honor and worth to the Lord, I ended up losing out on what God would have for me because I've hardened my heart. So today what I want to do, no, 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 no guilt, no push, Simply educate and perhaps remind us why we do what we do. And if you're from a different tradition, maybe you're like, why do these people do what they do? It's my desire that Radiant would be a church where you'll be loved where you're at, but yet challenged to grow. And so hear me. I want to love you where you're at, but I also want to challenge you to be all that you can be who God's designed you to be as a worshiper. Let's talk about the Bible, what it commands us to do. The Bible commands us to sing. Most of us don't have a problem with that, except for some of us don't sing, not guilt tripping, not pointing fingers. I'm just being honest with you. And some of it's some of America's culture and church, and I'll get there in a second, but most of us don't think of ourselves as singers, and I don't. But we are all worshipers, and we should think of ourselves as worshipers. Psalm 95 says this, verses 1 and 2. Come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come to him with thanksgiving. Let us sing psalms of praise to him. The Bible commands us to sing. God gave you vocal, think about this. God gave you vocal cords and lungs. So you are equipped at all times with an instrument of praise. And the Bible says to make a joyful noise, which is great, and that's really, that feels good to me who just makes a noise, uh, it, as long as it's joyful. I make a joyful noise. Anyone else make joyful noises with Jerome? Yes. I love what Pastor Josh said here. Like, sometimes you sing these songs, and I was sitting there, and I was like, why is this guy talking during the worship set? And I was like, ooh, that's really good. Thank you. That helps my sermon. To stop and sing and consider what, what it is that you're singing. For the most part, these words are incredible. Speaking about who God is and what he's done, what he's promised to do, who you are in him, where our hope, where we, who we, in whom we boast in. I mean, there's theology that's being solidified in our hearts and our minds as we sing these songs. But if we sing them mindlessly, they don't do us any good. Are you paying attention to the words? Not for a minute was I forsaken. The Lord is in this place. That's pretty awe-inspiring like wonder. The Lord is in this place. I'm not forsaken. We walk out of here with songs. I mean, we should study scripture, but most of us memorize like the songs, right? We sing the songs in our car. We, I mean, those things remind us and help ground us. 
the Lord is in this place. We, sh- we should sing joyfully when we sing that song. When, I, when we were youth pastors, we had a youth choir that used to travel and, uh, and did like fine arts competitions and all these teenagers up there. And they'd be like, let me just use this song. They didn't sing the song, but let me use the song as an example because we just sang it. Not for a minute was I forsaken. The Lord is in this place. We're like, guys, you got to smile. Because if the Lord is in this place, you ought to be smiling. I mean, think about the songs that we sing. Make a joyful noise, what the Bible says. So here's a practical tip. When you sing about God's goodness, smile. Like you're happy about God's goodness. Don't, no resting mean face singing in the church. That's biblical. No, just, just, just Jerome. But it's not just in the Old Testament. I know I read Psalm, but listen, uh, I read out of the Psalms. But listen, Colossians chapter 3, 16, uh, Paul says this, Let the message of Christ and all its riches fill your lives, teach and counsel each other with, with wisdom he gives, sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to God with thankful hearts. So singing is prescribed in the New Testament church. When the church is gathered, he's saying, I want you to sing. And we see that singing takes place in the early church. We saw it, when, we saw it in the book of Acts. We see it here in Colossians. It actually comes out of like Jewish roots. Do you know, like verbal, allowed worship is very much part of like first century Jewish worship and by default Christian worship. You, you can still see some of that that. In, in the Near East, you'll see like vocal, uh, verbal reaction and expression of great emotion with shouts of praise, people dancing in the street. It still happens today. And that was the birth of the church. One of the conversations I had that kind of led me to this, this series uh, was a friend of mine. We were in Orlando a few weeks ago for a conference. And they caught the guy and he's like, you know what? You know what one of the, the things that messes us up as, as people who worship in the church in America, clapping. He said, if, if, if a first century Christian walked into our church and we started clapping, they would be so confused because if you told them, hey, worship the Lord, they're going to go straight audible. They're going to go straight, you know, worshiping with their mouth, not, not to mention half the time when we clap, some of us are clapping because some, some of us don't know what we're clapping about, right? We clapping for the band? Are we clapping for Jesus? This one's for the band and this one's for Jesus? Band, Jesus, band. I mean, like, like there's a place to clap. If I get up and say, hey, we, we just gave this much to this organization. Let's, let's applaud. You guys are awesome. Clap. Thank you, so-and-so, for, for um, you know, doing whatever you did. Clap. But the clap for Jesus thing, and we'll probably still do it. I, I understand. I, we're Americans, and this is 2021 in, in America. We're st- we'll probably still do it. But it's confusing, I would, I would submit, to a first century Christian. So we see in the Old Testament. We see it in, in the New Testament. We see it in the early church. We, we see the Jewish roots. Yeah, I'm excited. I'm kind of a church history guy, so let me just give you a little bit of church history. From the very onset, we've been singing as a people. Do you know that? In the year 112, there was a guy named Pliny the Younger. He was a, a governor in a province of Bithynia, which is now modern-day Turkey. Christians were brought to his court, and he's like, what do I do with these people? What exactly did they do wrong? I'm not quite so sure that I think they're pretty much harmless, 
But you know what? I think I'm just going to ask them to recant their faith in Christ. And if they don't, I guess I'll just put them to death for no other reason that they didn't recant. But before he did that, he thought, you know, I probably should get permission from the, from the emperor and kind of, I almost said elders. I should probably get permission from the elders. I should probably get permission from the emperor. And, and, and he writes a letter to the emperor. His name is Trajan. And he's, he essentially, he says this. Let me read it to you. This is translated into English, just like your Bible. Uh, they asserted, however, this is they, referring to the Christians, that the sum of the substance of their fault or error has been that they were accustomed to meet on a fixed day before dawn and sing responsively a hymn to Christ as to, God, as to a God and bind themselves by oath, not to some crime, which is hilarious. It's like they bound themselves to some oath. Could you believe it? It wasn't even an oath to do a crime. The oath they bound themselves to was to not commit fraud, theft, or adultery, or falsify their trust, nor to refuse to return a trust when called upon to do so. When this was over, it was their custom to depart and to assemble again to partake of food, but ordinary and innocent food, not food all, you know, meant for idols. So that's like, honestly, that is the first description in the history of the church where we, where we, we know what the early church did. Like that's, it wasn't a Christian historian who's like, here's what Christians did when they gathered. It was a guy who was killing Christians who gave us our first record of Christian worship. Use that the next time you play trivia. Who is plenty of the younger? Beep, beep, beep. Um, <laughs> so singing. If I made a case that singing is an issue, most of us are saying, yeah, that's fine. Singing. Singing joyfully. Singing with our hearts engaged and in, in, in thinking about the words. I have one other thing that I want to share, but I think I'm going to skip that. I'm skipping that. Let's talk about raising our hands. This is the part, depending on your background and tradition, where you're like, oh, this is, this is the part where I'm like, I like Radiant, but I don't know about that guy over there with his hands raised. Let me, let me just say this again. I did not want to preach this sermon, but I felt like led to do this. Let's talk about biblical expressions of worship. In Nehemiah, we see Ezra, Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 2 through 6. Ezra stands up, and he reads the book of the law. Let me read it to you. So on October 8th, Ezra the priest brought the book of the law before the assembly, which included the men and women and all the children old enough to understand. He faced the square just out inside the water gate from early morning until noon and read aloud to everyone who could understand. All the people listened closely to the book of the law. I'm skipping verse 4 because there's a lot of big names, and, and we can skip it. Ezra stood on the platform in full view of the people. When he saw him open the book, they rose to their feet. Then Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people chanted, Amen, Amen, and they lifted their hands. Then they bowed down and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Raising your hands in conjunction with amen, amen. It's, 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 we raise your hands to testify, to give witness. It's like physically symbolizing, yes, I mean this. That's right. It's true. Just like when you, when you go like, I solemnly swear, I'm testifying when I raise my hands that what I'm saying is true. When we sing songs, we're saying, yeah, that's true. I believe it. I mean it. Not for a minute. Was I forsaken? Like, man, I, I'm in. I believe it. And if you've never raised your hands before, this is not about getting you to raise your hands. Except some of you are like, boy, I think maybe I would like to do that, but I don't know. We'll get there. And I promise you, 
this is like the weirdest sermon I've ever preached. Hopefully it's the weirdest sermon I will ever preach as your pastor. Because it's super like practical. Because if that's you, I would hate for you to hold back because you're afraid of what the person next to you thinks or what I think. I mean, if your heart is, is, is engaged and you want to worship and, you, and you're looking for, like, I want to express myself, there's biblical permission right there. So as a former kid who was in that same spot when I was about 13, I'm going to give you a couple of samples. There's this thing. You start here, right? And then you kind of move here. You know, it, it's okay. You can, you can grow in this thing. I'm just kidding. But no, I'm sort of kidding. That definitely was me when I was a kid. We raise our hands to testify. We also raise our hands to surrender and receive. Why do we do what we do? Surrender and receive. First Timothy 2. This was actually my devotions this morning. It was pretty cool. I urge you, first of all, this is Paul speaking to Timothy, one of his understudies, one of his pastors, one of, um, he was giving him instruction on how to be a Christian leader. We call them the pastoral epistles. I urge you, first of all, to pray for all people. Ask God to help them, intercede on their behalf, and give thanks for them. Pray this way for kings and all who are in authority so that we can live peaceful and quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants everyone to be saved and to understand the truth. For there is one God and one mediator who has reconciled God and humanity. Let me stop and point out this verse here. There is one God, one mediator, who has reconciled God and humanity, the man, Christ Jesus. He gave his life to purchase freedom for everyone. This is a whole other thing, but listen, if you walked in the door and said, I don't feel like worshiping, life is tough. The words that we sing and the truth that we believe, it doesn't matter how you walked in the door. God is God. Christ has done what he has done on our behalf. And if you could focus on that, So in the context of reconciliation with God, he, he continues on. This is the message God gave me or gave to the world at just the right time. And I have been chosen as a preacher and apostle to teach the Gentiles this message about faith and truth. I'm not exaggerating, just telling the truth. In every place of worship, I want men to pray with holy hands lifted up to God, free from anger and controversy. There's a sense of surrender in the context of reconciliation with God there is a surrender, and I'm going to receive with holy hands. We're going to pray that I am free, and I'm at peace with God. Think of the words that we sang. My hope is in Christ alone. I don't know about you and what you're comfortable with in your practice, but for me, that deserves a hand raised. My hope is in Christ alone. We raise our hands because it's biblical. The Bible affirms lifting of hands. David writes in Psalm 63, 4, I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. Moses raised his hands. The early church did it. We see it in um, King Solomon. When he prays at the temple, he, he spread his hands toward heaven in 1 Kings chapter 8. About 20 minutes. I was trying to figure out where, where the directions are going to. Like, <laughs> I 
I already mentioned Ezra in the book of Nehemiah. Ezra, once again, in Ezra chapter 9, verse 5, says he fell on his knees and spread his hands to the Lord. It's just a position. And if you look, if you're into church history, since we've already done church history once, let me do it again for you. There's a position called the Oren's position. If you get into church history, you may know this, or if you've seen Christian art, there's a, there's a prayerful position where hands are kind of in some variation of the letter Y, not MCA, but just a Y, right? You know what I'm talking about. You've seen these pictures. You've seen the, the hands raised to God as, as a form of prayer. As a matter of fact, liturgical churches, they still do this, but it's usually just the priest. But if you look at the historical, like, like all Christians prayed like this. Somehow, some way, we've gone from everybody praying in the gathering of the church, and you'll see that in the catacombs of Rome, the, the church is like this, they're praying, to now maybe just like the guy up front does this. We've been the people who've been raising our hands from the beginning in one form or the other. And just in case anyone's thinking, oh man, I knew I shouldn't have came to this church because Jerome is that kind of Christian. Uh, I value order. I value passion, but order is, is, is incredibly important. And, and I want to just calm anyone's fear that we're not going to be swinging from the chandeliers they're not low enough to grab anyways. We are, we are, we're going to do things in order. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 40. After he discusses corporate worship, after he discusses the, the proper use of, of, of the, 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 the gifts, and, and verse 13, which is the wedding thing, I love this thing. It, he talks about love, but it's not for weddings. It's talking about corporate gathering and the proper use of the gifts. And, and, and what, what does it do? What does it really matter? Anyways if he doesn't have love. But he says this in verse 14, or verse 40 of chapter 14, but be sure that everything is done properly in order. See, I want, I want, I, I believe that like your passion for the Lord is encouraging and stirs up the passion for the person next to you. So, and I think that there's young Christians who actually look to us and say, this is what it means to worship to be engaged, to be surrendered, to testify with their voice in their hands. While it stirs up passion in others, I don't want it to, I don't want anything to draw attention away from God. There is an appropriate time and place for everything. When everyone is singing, sing. In fact, sing loudly. When the pastor is preaching, don't sing. When the music, and I don't, you know, today was a perfect day to launch this series on worship because our worship team was kind of scaled back because it's, it's Labor Day weekend. We didn't have the drummer. I don't know about you, but sometimes I'm just like, dun, 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 I'm that guy. Like, I want that in my worship. We didn't have it today. But God's still holy. My hope is still in Christ alone. I am fully pleasing to the Father. Nothing has changed theologically, so my worship ought, ought to not change based on the lack of drums. That's a freebie. Appropriate time and place. Move to the beat with or without drums in your seat. Just don't stand on your seat. When the music is really soft, maybe you don't have to sing really loud. Anything that distracts someone from their focus on God becomes a problem. 
So we do things in order. Things are done just right. Let me close with this thought here. Our worship as a church is part of our witness. Paul continues on, or Paul in the same chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 24 says this, but if all of you are prophesying and unbelievers or people who don't understand these things come into your meeting, they will be convicted of sin and judged by what you say. As they listen, their secret thoughts will be exposed and they will fall on their knees and worship God, declaring God is truly here among you. See, for Paul, having non-Christians coming into our worship services back in the first century, it should have been the norm. Like, we should have non-Christians walk into our midst. And I, I would like for Radiant to be a place where non-Christians will walk into our midst. And Paul is saying that God uses our worship, the order and the passion, to point to the fact that he is real. What did he say? That they will listen, their secret thoughts will be exposed, and they will fall on their knees and worship God, declaring God is truly here among you. Paul is saying God uses our passionate worship to reach non-believers, not people who are not Christians. And that word prophesy, I know sometimes you're thinking like, oh, isn't that like I, I prophesy the Colts will lose week one to the Seahawks? That's not what he's talking about. Prophesy is like to proclaim, to speak out truth. That's why when things are a prophetic word, they're not always about the future. They're just about the now and what, what, God's, what God's speaking to the moment. The way we worship should prove to outsiders that God is real, that he's alive, that he's among us. But it's not very convincing when we're singing about Jesus' victory, but acting like we're defeated. I, I'm going to get there in a second. I understand there's personalities and there's comfort zones. Let me get there. But I will say our passion proves that Jesus is alive to the people who most need Jesus. See, I, I believe that what's happened in, in, in America, or maybe just the world as, as technology has in, improved, and um, we've done a better job with doing church with excellence. There was a, a time where like church wasn't necessarily done with as much excellence, and, and people were like, ah, I don't know if I want to go to that thing. Uh, so we're like, oh, we got to do things with excellence. And our pursuit of excellence, almost professionalism, has un unintended consequences of making church kind of a spectator sport where we stand and watch the professionals passionately worship. Doesn't mean we don't love Jesus, but we just kind of, it's, it's turned into that. I'm not knocking upping our game. I'm not knocking doing worship well and doing things with excellence. I'm just saying the unintended consequences is, I'm, I'm not saying we should, be, we should do worship poorly so we all worship. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying if we're not careful, we become spectators. If we're not careful, we become consumers. This is the song that I want to sing. This is the style that I like it. This is the way I like the lights. And no, it's not all about looks. But a church that looks dead usually is dead, and a church that looks alive is alive. May our worship be centered on who he is, what he has done, and not our preferences. May we not be passionless spectators of a passionate band on the stage.
expressive worship is not cultural, it's biblical. And I, I got to be honest with you, I always thought it was kind of cultural because I grew up in a church that had that culture. And I'm the most conservative person in that church who had that culture. I, I, I consider myself conservative. I'm, I, I have my comfort zone. I'm reserved in worship. I actually said that to, this, to the search committee of this church, like, yeah, don't worry. I'm conservative. We're not going to swing from the chandeliers. Like, that was like a selling point. It was. And I think God gives us room to be who we are and our personalities, and, and, and that's fine. But I get in trouble when I use that as an excuse. Am I conservative because that's who I am? Am I reserved in my expression of worship? Biblical, like, not just permission, but like almost biblical command. Sing a joy, with a joyful, make a joyful noise. Sing to him aloud. I'm afraid that perhaps I've, I've stood behind that as an excuse and I've missed out on what, what the blessing I could have from engaging in worship fully. And I wonder if perhaps some of us can identify with that. I believe the number one reason that people don't engage in worship is that they are worried what other people think. And if you're worried what other people think, then stop it. If you get nothing else from this sermon, stop it. It's like that Bob Newhart thing. Um, do you know who I'm talking about? Yes. Don't be, you should not be worried what your neighbor thinks. You should, not be, you should be worried what God thinks. If you have been fully accepted by your Heavenly Father, what does it matter what other people think? And here's the ironic thing about worrying about what other people think. I love this. You've come to church to worship. The guy next to you has come to church to worship. But neither of you necessarily want to worship in front of the other guy. Isn't that silly? Like, I don't want to be seen doing the thing that I came here to do, right, by the person who came here to do the same thing. Crazy. I'm not saying, this is in no way a judgment to radiance. I stood here this morning, and I heard you singing behind me, and I was like, Thank God that this is not like a heavy-handed sermon. I'm just saying, it, that's a reality. Whatever insecurity, whatever pride may, may exist, we miss out on what God, on the blessings of engaging in worship as he's designed us and created us to do. Instead of stirring each other up because of our insecurity, we stifle each other with negative peer pressure. So expressive worship, it, it's, culture, it's, it's not cultural, it is biblical. By the way, I just realized I was sweating. And I don't know if that's because this is a whole different approach to me on preaching or if it's cold or hot in here. When you guys are comfortable in your seats, do you know that I'm like blazing hot? I just want you to know, and when you guys are freezing cold, I am super comfortable. So I guess you're welcome. I guess you're comfortable. Let me close on this. You and I were made to worship. God put it in our DNA. I want to be a church that passionately pursues the Lord. And I believe we are that church. But if there's an individual, if you're out there and you would say, you know, somewhere along the way, I, I, I desired that. But then maybe, maybe, maybe someone told you men don't show emotions. 
and I keep going back to the men. Maybe someone said, maybe, maybe someone who's not a Christian made fun of you because you're excited about Jesus. <laughs> and so you brought it back a notch or two. You became self-conscious. Maybe you let worry stop you from worshiping what God made you do. And, and, and can I say, not only is it biblical and not just, you know, not cultural, but it's biblical. It's also natural because that's how God made us. It may feel more natural to sit there and kind of be reserved and not express any kind of, you know, love for the Lord. And I, and, in no way am I saying you can't sit there and worship the Lord in silence. I think we probably need more silence in our churches, more awe and reverence. But I'm saying, if you are created to worship, nothing should feel more natural than that. If you're not a Christian, I wanna close this by just addressing you one last time. I mentioned you earlier. Um, this was a weird message to come in and hear because it's really towards just the Christians. It is my hope that throughout this message you heard a little bit of why we do what we do, but I want you to know why we do what we do. It's because of Jesus Christ and the cross. And if you walk, with nothing, if you walk out of here with nothing else, let it not be about singing loud or first century art in the catacombs of Rome or whatever. Let, don't let it be about really raising your hands. Let it be about what, who not what. And that who is Jesus Christ steps out of heaven in our place that we are separated from God, born into sin. And Jesus Christ comes and lives a life we could not live and dies a death in our place that we, be, we may be made right with God. And all we need to do is call on him receive what he's offering and cross that line of faith. That's why we are gathered here today. At this time, we're going we're gonna to remember what it is that Jesus did. If you have your communion elements with you, you should have picked those up as you walked in. If, if not, you can go to the back and, and grab that. think about the times where I've walked into worship services and I thought, man, I don't feel like this. And I've, I've already shared this, that I guess it really doesn't matter what I feel like. It matters what's true. And if I only worshiped when I felt like it, I don't know that I'd worship a whole lot. It's like saying, I'm only going to feed my kids when I feel like it. The kids would be hungry. I'm only going to go to work when I feel like it. find yourself in that place this is why we do what we do we, we, 
we really are grace amnesiacs. We forget the grace that, that God has shown us. We forget the sacrifice. And that's why he tells us to do this. This is Paul writing to the church in Corinth. Ordinarily, I would get into some of the details because I love the details of where, why he gives this, but let me just read it to you from... I'll just read it to you. For I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread. He gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and said, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. If you have your cup, you take the bread out and eat it with me now. We're going to pray. Father, we thank you. What a privilege we have to gather together, to turn our attention to you, to lift you up in our heart, to worship you with our voice. And it's all because of what it is that we're remembering right now. Thank you for the broken body of Jesus. The Logos taking on flesh, walking amongst his creation, giving himself up that we may be made right. We do this in remembrance of that. In Jesus' name, would you eat with me? same way he took the cup of wine after supper saying this cup is the new covenant between God and his people an agreement confirmed with my blood do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it for every time you eat this bread and drink this cup you're announcing the Lord's death until he comes again let's pray father we thank you for shed blood of your son Jesus Christ we sing the song it washes white as snow when we stop and consider your great love for us when we stop and consider that blood was shed not because of anything we did but it's because of what we did for what we did but not because we've earned it or deserved it what grace take this, Lord, remembering what it is that your son did on the cross. In Jesus' name.